So tonight we're going to finish this topic, Wisdom Walks This Way. That's my theme in the book of James, because I think of it as the New Testament form of the book of Proverbs. But uh, we come to chapter five tonight, and we're going to take a look at the last paragraph beginning in verse 13 through 20. I want to remind you that next Wednesday night is Thanksgiving Eve. We're not going to have a Bible study, so I uh, hope you have a nice holiday next week. And then two weeks from tonight, uh, we're just going to do a few isolated little studies that lead up uh, uh, toward Christmas and then over Christmas, uh, those couple of Wednesdays right before Christmas and right before New Year's, we'll take a two-week break. And then after the first of the year, we'll, uh, we'll dive into another topic for the winter and spring. So that's kind of our plan for tonight. Uh, <clears throat> if you uh, receive the email, you have the handout in front of you, and uh, so Let's go ahead and get started. Jump in if you have questions or comments and uh, begin with this particular uh, slide that I've used the last two weeks. And uh, we've talked a little bit about how this last part of James <clears throat> is giving us five practical applications uh, for what had gone uh, on before in the uh, epistle between chapters 313 and 410. Uh, James put a big emphasis on pride and envy and selfishness, and he drew a correlation to uh, those type of things that happen in the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so what he does in the last part here is he gives to us five practical applications. We've looked at four of them so far, how we speak of others, how we make plans, uh, what we do with our resources, how we wait for God. And then tonight we want to talk about uh, communal prayer and accountability that's found in the very closing. <clears throat> so to get started on that, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, what we want to do is uh, just kind of contrast this paragraph with the previous paragraph. So you remember last week, James 5, 7 through 12, focused on waiting for the future coming of the Lord, having patience as we are going through trials, uh, knowing that the Lord is going to bring justice and, uh, and put things to rights. Now, tonight, in verses 13 through 18, it focuses upon the present availability of the Lord to his people, but it does so in a way that it stresses the involvement of all of God's people in the times that we find ourselves in uh, trials and tribulations. Maybe the common the common theme that we see between the sections is this undercurrent of being submissive to God and his will. And so having said that, what we find is in this particular paragraph, we see the power of prayer. So I'm going to read verses 13 through uh, 18, and then we'll come back and we'll kind of pinpoint some stuff out of these verses. In verse 13, chapter 5. It says, is any one of you in trouble, he should pray. Is anyone happy, let him sing songs of praise. Is anyone sick, he should call on the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. So uh, let's take a look at this overall paragraph. Notice on the slide here, the opening verse introduces prayer. Uh, as an activity that we all participate in uh, during our uh, present difficulties. And then in the next two verses, he gives some specific instructions, and he tells those that are going through difficulty to uh, turn to the leadership of the church, to have them pray for the situation. And there is also the idea of anointing of oil in this paragraph as well. 
And then from there, he has some general comments that includes one final Old Testament personality, and that is Elijah. So we've looked at several in the book of James, and this is the last one that he brings up uh, as far as a character um, a sketch of an individual that prayed. What's interesting, though, as we'll see, is in this particular illustration, Elijah is not praying for healing, which seems to be the immediate context here in this paragraph, uh, but I think the overall illustration of Elijah is that prayer is powerful and effective, even though Elijah is praying about rain, um, and it's a whole different scenario than when an individual is personally sick. So any thoughts or comments on the paragraph before we dive a little deeper into the verses? So let's look at some of the phrasing that you see in these verses here. He says, is any among you in trouble? And so here we have kind of a thematic transition. He's already talked about trials. Uh, at the beginning of the book, he says, uh, if we are in the midst of difficulties and we lack wisdom, we should ask of God who gives to all people liberally. Uh, what we find here is in the midst of difficult situations, uh, we should pray that God will uh, work on our behalf. So while we're waiting patiently for the Lord to return for ultimate uh, restoration of a world that has gone astray, uh, we also pray for our immediate uh, needs as well. This idea of trouble could include a lot of different things. Maybe it has to do with physical things, which it seems as though that's what's in the immediate paragraph here. But we've seen trouble earlier in the book that could be persecution. It could be various type of relational difficulties, some of the conflict that takes place between individuals and so forth. But what we see also is a contrast. And that is, uh, people that are in trouble should pray, but if it, an individual is happy, let him sing songs of praise. In other words, uh, we should not neglect to give thanks uh, to God for his involvement in our lives, his answer to our prayers. And one way that we express that to him is uh, singing songs of praise uh, back to God. And we've been talking on Sunday morning the past two weeks about the Psalms. So if you're looking for ways to praise God and uh, you're kind of coming up blank a little bit, uh, delve into the Psalms. They will give you a lot of material on knowing how to give thanks to God for the various ways he intervenes in our lives. You have some questions there, comments there? I have a quick question. Yeah. Um, my version says, is anyone among you suffering? Uh -huh. um, do you think that's the same thing as in trouble or in a different way? It could be. What translation are you using there, Kay? Uh, New American Standard. Okay. Um, New American Standard is a more literal type of a translation, um, mm -hmm. whereas I'm using the New International Version here. Uh, New International Version, uh, its translation is more than literally, uh, it is, it, the way they translated the New International Version is more like dynamic equivalence uh, type of approach rather than wooden literalism. So probably mm -hmm. what is going on is that the New uh, American Standard is translating it Probably uh, the way the word is probably translated the majority of the times, if you take it in a literal sense. Um, mm. uh, but the NIV, I think, is trying to include the fact that suffering comes in a variety of different ways. Um, and so another alternative definition to that word, Greek word that's being used could include trouble, and maybe that's why they chose that. I don't see a notation in my Bible. Sometimes um, where there are two different translations, 
you have different families of ma Greek manuscripts that have one reading, another family of manuscripts might have a, a little bit different reading. And so well, depending upon what the uh, translators, what particular sets of manuscripts they're using to translate might shade their translation one way or the other. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I don't know. Usually when there's an alternative reading uh, that's in found in other manuscripts, if you have a Bible that has footnotes or notations in the margins, it'll usually tell you some manuscripts read this and they'll give you the alternative way it can be read. But I don't see that in my Bible here on this particular verse. So, okay. But anyways, go ahead. I was just going to say they have a reference to 510, and it's the same word. Um, suffering. So 510, um, yeah, now this is interesting. The NIV in 510 says, brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering. So the word that they, the way they translate that same word in that verse is suffering versus trouble here in yeah. verse 13. Yeah, interesting. interesting. Yeah, so. Hmm. Other thoughts? My nose is sniffling a little bit, so excuse me at times when I need to. Any other thoughts? All right, we'll move on. Then he says, is anyone sick? Um, now here, I think it's this idea of probably more in our Western viewpoint kind of when we think of sickness we use usually think of some type of physical sickness uh some type of germ-induced illness or those type of things in james world it might not be that narrow uh we've already seen some of the struggle earlier in the book of of fighting against the devil it might be that james has in mind here beyond the physical that could include emotional, uh, spiritual, mental situations that individuals are going through. So sickness here might be a, a broader category, just more so than physical sickness here. And, and I think that would make sense. Um, I don't think James would be saying to call upon the elders of the church for physical sickness only. Sometimes other forms of illness uh, or situations can even be more complex than, um, than just the physical element. So, you know, I, that's my take on that. But uh, other thoughts on that? I actually had a, a study on this in the Greek and the Greek words asthenai, and it means weak. Like, okay. uh -huh. like spiritually and uh -huh. physically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. so. I, I that's think a good point. I think it is, it is having the elders when you're spiritually weak or you could be physically weak, but yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's probably more than, than just the physical element of it here. So now, now we come to this idea, let them call on the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. So first observation that I know is it seems as though James is saying you should make it your responsibility to initiate the type of support that you need, in this case with the leadership of the church, uh, in the, this case here, he uses the word elders. Remember we said that the book of James is probably one of the earlier books of the New Testament. I'm not so sure that the structure of the early church is, is very complex at this point. Um, you know, later in some of Paul's writings, he talks about bishops, he talks about deacons, he talks about deaconesses, that type of thing. I don't think it's probably that developed uh, this early in the New Testament. It could be here uh, that 
you have a group of individuals that are the leaders of the church, and they are the ones that are uh, given the responsibility to, to kind of shepherd or oversee the flock and how they're doing, that type of thing. So the first thing it says is, uh, you, he says, call on the elders of the church, call on the leaders of the church, take the initiative to do that. Um, I find over the course of my ministry career that people don't tend to do that all that much. Uh, they might tend to call upon friendship circles a little bit sooner than they do call upon the leadership of the church. And that might be out of fear uh, that, you know, some of the things that we saw earlier in the book, things like uh, gossip or slander or things like that could take place. Um, and which I understand a lot of times in church, when we see people that call in prayers uh, and ask people to intervene, uh, they are looking for that help. But on the other end, those that are receiving those prayer requests, a lot of times use those um, requests as an opportunity to gossip a little bit. And I think that breaks down a lot of trust factors uh, in the church. So I think what James is probably insisting upon here is that there's a level of trust between the elders and the people that they're not going to misuse that information uh, that is given to them. Uh, I do not see here at this point where people that are a part of the fellowship here necessarily uh, everyone knows of the situation. It seems as though, to me anyways, that the focus is a little bit narrow that you, you're going to trust certain leaders to pray. And we'll talk about anointing with oil here in a second. But um, not, I don't know that this is getting up on a Lord's Day and necessarily letting the whole congregation know. Uh, that can be a bit risky uh, because I don't think everybody has the discipline to hold confidence uh, and betray people's sensitive situations. But so, but I think once you see later in the New Testament how, uh, how Paul per, puts certain character qualities on the leaders, uh, what you'll find, especially in Timothy and in Titus, is that they are to be trustworthy individuals so that if something is shared with them, it doesn't uh, it doesn't become something that everybody in the community knows about. It seems to be more of a tight, trusted relationship uh, to pray for strength, to pray for healing if it's an individual that's sick, to pray for wisdom if it's somebody that's uh, uh, going through something specifically that's difficult for them to ascertain what God's will is or what they should do next. So, there is an element of submission here as well. So what you find is when you call upon the leadership, you are submitting your levels of trust into their care. And that can be a very vulnerable thing. And so a lot of times what you'll find is people will find other trusted relationships. And I have not found in the 20th, 20th and 21st century a lot of people actually call upon the elders of the church to come as a unit to pray over individuals and anoint them with oil. I've only done that a couple of times, and it seems as though uh, this was more of a common practice maybe early in the church. So um, that, that's just some of my initial observations on this. You'll notice at the bottom, it says the elders are not called because they are more spiritually mature than everybody else in the church, but they have a certain responsibility for community care. And uh, in doing that, uh, they are entrusted sometimes with very sensitive information, but they, uh, they are to pray over these individuals for healing and so forth. 
Do you have some thoughts on that particular topic? I I really do because uh, I was in a church where they did that and they, they yeah. kind of announced everyone's sin. Like, uh -huh. uh, and then um, even in prayer saying, God, I just really help them seeing as how they're sleeping with so-and-so or, you know, and the, oh, wow. it was like a total gossip session. Yeah. Totally untrustworthy. And I really agree with you on this. How, how did the church not empty itself? Uh, it when, did. I mean, it did. It over and over again. They're still going, but, um, yeah, it it goes through a series of emptying and uh, yeah betrayals. It feels like. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Imagine people would go back into the circle where they've been betrayed. But you know, some of that. What do you think motivated that? Okay, I'm just kind of curious. What it, motivated that approach? It seemed like. Um, they were wanting to know secrets and that they held the secret information, but um, their, their stuff was never broadcast. It was always like the lower echelon people. You know, that, do you think it was for some sense of control or yeah, do you think it was yeah. for some sense of self-righteousness? Oh, um, hmm. That's a good question. I'm not yeah, sure. I'm not yeah. sure. I, I don't know. I just, it's I don't know either, but they definitely felt it was fully in the realm of their ability to betray trust and they didn't consider it betraying. Uh huh. Wow. Yeah. So, so and Mark I think that's asking, Mark is asking, um, Do you get up and tell your own sins or are they getting up and telling other people's sins? No, it's pretty much other people's sins. Yeah. So Mark asked, well, how would you know what other people are doing? Well, yeah, unless- They would, uh, they would go to them in confidence and, uh -huh. then, and then like uh, at a, a leader's meeting, then they'd say, yeah, this person is doing this, this, and that. Like in the context of, let's pray for them, and they're they're sinning that they're doing. Oh boy! But in doing that, they didn't they didn't make it anonymous or say, someone is struggling that I know. Can we just pray for them? But they would like name it. Uh, say so this no, there was no protection over no. other people at all. No, wow. no. Well, that's a, well, that's toxic. That, it was, yeah, it was so toxic. toxic. Yeah. yeah. So, anyways, and that's a thank you for sharing that. I, I think that's a good reason why, in general, uh, people don't trust leadership. You know that much. They, you know, they're not sure what their motivation is or what they're going to get out of it that type of thing. And uh, so I just haven't seen a whole lot of this. Now, I'm going to give you an example of in a second here where one element of a Christian church still, still practices this pretty consistently. But let me hold off on that for a second. Um, any other thoughts on this slide? So let's talk about anointing with oil for a moment. So I do think that this is more of a cultural expression. Uh, when you read Old and New Testament, you're going to see oil has both a physical element to it and it has a symbolic element to it. So take a look. Uh, it could be symbolized three things. So oil in the sense of a medicinal type of expression uh, could be put on as a way of physically symbolizing. We hope that you, we hope that you are healed even as this oil feels good upon your 
forehead or on your hand or whatever it may be. Uh, we hope that it, it will be reflected also in the healing of your entire body, whether that is something physical or whether that is something emotional, uh, that type of thing. Sometimes it's associated with joy. There's a couple of references there in Psalms and Isaiah where oil is seen as gladness. So uh, oil could be medicinal or it could be associated with joy because you just came through something and you're out the other side and, uh, and the oil represents something uh, wonderful and fragrant and that type of thing. Number two, uh, anointing with oil sometimes uh, can symbolize the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. So uh, the oil can represent that God's presence is upon you. Uh, you can see that in Acts and in Luke. Um, and then lastly, in the Old Testament, oil also can be an anointing thing in the sense of anointing a king, uh, in the sense for his enablement to lead the people. Uh, a person who's anointed with oil can be seen as someone who is set apart uh, in a particular way to do a particular task. So when you see oil, uh, it could be a number of things that it represents. Here, maybe the anointing with oil in the name of the Lord is an interesting turn of phrase. Uh, anointing him with oil might represent the medicinal. It might also represent the spiritual. So in the name of the Lord here has something to do with the healing ministry of Jesus. Um, and what you might see is as James looked back upon the earthly ministry of his half-brother. It may be that as people were healed in Jesus' name, uh, that authority that uh, Jesus gave to his disciples still had that ability to heal people. We see a little bit of that in the book of Acts, don't we? So at the, at the temple, there's a lame man uh, Peter and James, uh, Peter and John, rather, come along. This is Acts chapter three, and he's begging for money because he's lame. And Peter says, "Well, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have, I give to you. Uh, be healed in the name of the Lord." So, uh, the the one thing I don't think this is saying is that using this phrase in the name of the Lord is some type of magic word. As long as you attach that, you have kind of a guarantee of healing. I don't, I think it may be, I think it's probably more in alignment with as the Lord healed, we pray for healing as well in our, uh, as in our delegated uh, ministry of carrying on the Lord's work on earth. So, what are your thoughts on that? Any ideas? So Etsy said, maybe it's recognizing it's all under God's control, which I think that in the previous paragraph, uh, we see some of that as we wait patiently upon the Lord in that previous paragraph. So yeah, that might be true. Oh, okay. Good question. So what Esty was saying is, uh, does this have anything to do, you know, in our day and age, a lot of people are using essential oils because it's good for your body and, uh, you know, it's good for certain ailments or it's good for uh, sleep or whatever it may be. Um, yeah, I do think that's true, that oil probably served a number of medicinal purposes and they knew that. And that's why they use those type of things. Maybe we're just getting caught up on the value of essential oils in our own day and age. And rather than turning to pharmaceuticals, 
a lot of people are turning to the more natural oils as a way to, uh, you know, aid them in whatever they're uh, ailing from. So. Uh, oh, good question, Mark. He says, is the oil just for sickness or it's not anything that's associated with like baptism? I don't think so. I think at this point, because of the paragraph, it is dealing with sickness, whether you want to think of that in terms of physical sickness only, or if you want to see it at a, uh, as a broader definition. Um, no, I would not equate that with um, baptism, but uh, at the same time, there is a value, um, I think, of using oil as a way of expressing something in terms of wanting God's favor upon a person, that type of thing. So I would not hesitate um, to, you know, if you're ever allowed to go back into hospitals, <laughs> you know, for the last 20 months that you're visiting has been curtailed. But I wouldn't hesitate to say that's probably something very comforting to a patient. Let's say that they're going into surgery, a serious surgery, to take a little bit of oil and say, you know, we're praying for you, we're asking God to do something wonderful. That oil might have a sense of, oh yeah, this is going to carry with me. I could feel it on my skin a little bit. Yeah, yeah. He says, would you make the sign of the cross? And I, I would say I would have any hesitation to do that. I think that's a good idea. The last time I used oil was at a child dedication. So uh, Jim and Carrie Gold's, Goldstein's uh, granddaughter, I dedicated upstairs here. And I used a little bit of oil on the, on the baby's forehead. Uh, but it, I think it's just a matter of how comfortable people are when you ask them whether or not they'd like to receive a bit of oil. Sometimes people might get freaked out at that. The, again, I keep telling you, I'm going to tell you how they're using that today, but just hang on because well, I'll give you a preview here for a second. If, if that oil is associated with last rites that a priest does, uh, it could scare the bejeebers out of a person that they think they're going to die. Uh, so <laughs> You know, but I think if we have a better, well-rounded uh, approach to it, the oil could be a sense of comfort, maybe, to people. And they brought Other gifts thoughts? of oil to Jesus when um, frankincense and myrrh, yeah. right? Yeah, that's true. And, it, and you, remember, you remember the woman that broke a whole vial of oil right. and, and uh, put it on Jesus' uh, feet. Uh, and that was an anointing, knowing that he was going to go to the cross. And so she elaborately, I mean, this was an expensive amount of oil that she used to dedicate him to the task of him going to the cross. So, so interesting thoughts here. Okay. So Beth was saying when she was attending French church on a Wednesday night, sometimes they had uh, a service where people could get oil if they needed healing and that type of thing. So Beth, how did that make you feel? Did you feel uneasy about that at all or no? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. So Beth was saying that I asked her if, it, if she would felt uneasy. And she said that at first because she wasn't familiar with it, but then she got more familiar with it and felt more comfortable with it. So have any of you had any experience with that at all then? in your your past with anointing oil or comforting oil i don't know if they use oil or not he's asking uh mark's asking in uh the baptism of infants in the catholic church do they also use oil 
Uh, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, right. Well, they make the sign of the cross with water too. Even in funerals, when the oil is, uh, not oil, sorry, the water is sprinkled on a casket, as it's brought into the church, they'll they'll make a sign of the cross. Yeah, yeah, they do use oil though at ceremony. Uh huh. Very good. Interesting. There's not a lot of places in the New Testament that talks about this. This is one of the few places in the New Testament that talks about this. So, you know, a lot of times there's different opinions about this because you could see what what is the purpose of this. James does not. He's not real elaborate on giving us an explanation. So it tells me, though, that it was a practice that probably was done on a regular basis since he didn't feel compelled to explain it. You know, it, it must have been something that was common. All right, let's move ahead. Okay, so I said this a few times here. So... In the Catholic denomination, uh, the anointing of the sick with oil is also called extreme unction. And what that is it tends to do is uh, when a person of the Catholic faith senses that a loved one is about ready to pass away, they will call a priest in to perform last rites or the technical term here, extreme unction, because it is seen as one of the sacraments uh, in the Catholic faith. So you'll notice here, the sacrament is administered by a priest or a bishop, and he uses oil on the sick and, uh, excuse me. Oh, excuse me. Ah. <laughs> and, it, and from what I was researching here, um, this seems to be an act of special grace that is given to the individual. And there's uh, five things that I've listed here. Sometimes it's the uniting of the sick person to the passion of Christ. So there's this idea that as Christ went through suffering, we do too as well. So there's kind of a, a connection with what he went through. Secondly, uh, it's the strengthening and the peace and the courage to endure the suffering that you're going through in your illness or old age. Thirdly, sometimes it's associated with the forgiveness of sins. And uh, that's found in this paragraph, especially the last verse where it talks about a cover for a multitude of sins. Uh, the oil can be a desire for the restoration of health. Uh, and uh, many times it's a preparation for an individual that's passing away and they're passing over into eternal life. So I'm not sure that Every time a priest goes in to use oil, it's, it's being used for one singular purpose. It might be one or a, a combination of these things that I've just listed here. But I don't know enough about that to, to speak authoritatively on that. But I do know, though, growing up in Akron, North Hill, which was a heavy Italian community at the time I was growing up. Um, Catholics, especially old school Catholics, really feared for the salvation of the soul of their loved one if the priest was unable to perform last rites upon them before they pass away. So it's maybe more of a fear factor than anything else. And I would say that's unfortunate because a lot of times things that fear is used to create a need of dependence. And I, I feel at times the Catholic church does do that where some of the things that they do, 
the average person is dependent upon the priesthood. Uh, so there's this create, you know, a need for continued dependence. But uh, having never been Catholic, I could be entirely wrong here. But it, uh, it, it, it just appears as though there's unwarranted fear at times that's created. What are your thoughts? Oh, I was raised Catholic, so uh -huh. I uh, know all about the, the fear and still, still to me. But uh, is that a, is that an accurate description that I just gave? The fear, yeah, I, th I think it is a lot of fear. You don't, you aren't sure if you're going to go to heaven or not, based uh -huh. on, you know, how bad were your sins that you committed, uh -huh. and there's sort of uh -huh. the scale that you never are quite sure. Um, so, and the oils used in a lot of the sacraments, um, and sometimes they mix it with perfume. Uh huh. Like, um, but yeah, for that, I don't remember the names of the things, but uh -huh. you know, my brother um, was in the hospital, and he was still Catholic, um, and he asked for a priest for last rites, uh -huh. and they sent him this pastor. And um, he told him that it didn't matter because it really, there really wasn't a heaven or hell. And then he went like this, hallucination. And really? then, yeah, my brother called the nurse over and he said, was there a man here? Because he thought he made it up. He, uh -huh. said, yeah. he said, yeah, the pastor was there. <laughs> he said hallucination like that instead of getting last rites. So I've always thought about that. Um, he passed away, but to him, that was really important, you know, that he had yeah, that. Yeah, I think, too, I think it really is uh, a very important sacrament um, for a lot of Catholics and stuff. And, and and I don't want to I don't want to talk down on it at this because I don't know enough about it to no. be able to to make a proper evaluation of it. All I know is that many times people, they just kind of always live with shame or guilt that's heaped upon, this just isn't Catholic, this is all churches, that heap a lot of shame and guilt upon the oh. congregants. And it becomes a way of, I don't know, of codependence. We need you to keep coming to church and you need us to intervene on your behalf. That type of thing. Uh, yeah. so, so it's just, yeah, it's an interesting dynamic. Uh-huh. Yeah. So what Esty just said was, um, if if various sacraments are used in such a way to bring people closer to God, then it can be a very valuable thing. Um, and so, you know, people argue about modes of baptism, sprinkle pouring or immersion or, you know, baby baptism versus baby dedication or whatever it may be. And maybe we over we argue over things that don't really contribute anything to the to the value that it brings to an individual maybe in different settings different things mean different things to certain people to bring some great comfort or brings them closer in their walk with god and if that's the end of it then who am i to criticize that a different culture does things differently than the way I do. So, I mean, um, so it seems here this type of paragraph can be used in such a way as to, I guess, create certain subcultures. Uh, so, you know, uh, there are certain churches that never do this. There are certain churches that probably do this all the time using oil as a as a way of bringing about some sense of comfort or healing so 
Okay, let's move on. So here's the promise, the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. Uh, verse 15, uh, the Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. So there's the, that forgiveness part that we were just talking about. Uh, I don't know that James is guaranteed that the sick person will be healed. Now, again, timeline might have something to do with this. If James is writing very early on, he might be under the impression that uh, one of the earthly ministries of Jesus was to heal the sick. Therefore, if we are praying on behalf of the sick, they will get healed. Um, a little bit further into the New Testament, though, you'll find that Paul prayed three times that a thorn in the flesh, a physical ailment that he was struggling with, would be taken away, and God says, my grace is sufficient for you. So uh, this might be James's emphasis at this point in time, but I, I would hesitate to say that he's guaranteed uh, healing, because here's the danger of this. If we think that James is guaranteed that a person will be healed, and they're not, it's very easy then to cross over and say, well, it must be that person's fault. They didn't have enough faith or they have some hidden sin or whatever it may be. And that's why they weren't healed. And I think that's, that's, I think that's a little bit too, too much of a leap to take, but um, I, I'm not sure what's in James thinking at this point. Uh, you can read and I, and I, I encourage you to do so as an illustration in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. There's a story that might help us understand what James means. So in Mark 9, Jesus's disciples are unable to cast a demon out of a certain man's son. Uh, and this boy seems to be, from the characteristics that we're given, is that he was probably having some seizures. Whether he had epilepsy or not, we're not sure. Uh, Jesus then, interestingly enough, rebukes the disciples. And he says, you know, why could, you know, why could this demon be, be exercised? Uh, then he interacts with the boy's father. And what we find is uh, the boy, I mean, uh, the boy's father is trying to believe, and it seems as though Jesus acts upon this faith that he has. And so in the end, uh, the demon comes out by prayer, and, uh, and the boy is healed. Now, that is a strange story, and it's very complicated on how to use that story correctly. But what James is saying here might be built on those type of stories that if you have faith, then God will heal. If you don't, then it might not be so. And that's why that he includes, if he has sinned, it will be forgiven. The Lord will raise him up. He'll give to him forgiveness. Uh, that's that he introduces in verse 16, the confession of your sins to each other. But brings, which brings up another dynamic. Who do you confess your sins to? And do you, call, do you have to confess them to an elder or to a priest or some, uh, something like that to find the healing and grace that you need at a particular point in time? So. Do you think he uh, so what Esty just said because I know you you can't hear this laptop's microphone is straight ahead type thing uh, she was saying that confessing your sins to somebody can be very useful, especially if you've hurt somebody 
uh, to go and say, hey, I confess to the fact that I mistreated you or hurt you in some way, that it will, it will expedite healing and forgiveness a lot more than just covering it over. Did I say that right? So yeah, that's really true. Yeah. Okay, let's keep going. So here's a key question in this paragraph. Whose faith is James referring to? Is he talking about the faith of the elders who's anointing the sick person? Or is he talking about the sick and their faith? All, um, the, all the above, as he says. Okay, that we've, we've solved it. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, it is, it's interesting to ask a question. I wonder what James had in mind. Was he thinking of the hmm. elders? having enough faith that as they anoint, you know, that there could be healing that takes place, or is it the actual person that's going through suffering? Uh, yeah. So, so as he says, if the elders go and just do this flippantly, because it's just kind of a routine, to do that, what power is there in that, right? So, yeah, okay. very good point. So the tricky part of this passage, as I mentioned here, is when James mentions that sin is a possible cause of the sickness. And yet I'll add at the same time, it's not automatically the case. So I already gave you the illustration of Paul who had a thorn in the flesh and God says, no, that's there, that you might rely upon me and, and uh, my grace is sufficient for you. So the tricky part of all this is I don't think we have the working knowledge to determine whether an illness is caused by uh, a virus, it's caused by a sin. I, I don't think we have any way of being able to determine that. So my opinion is that we, we react to people, no matter what they're going through, with as, as much love and grace as we possibly can, and uh, not worry about what the cause is. So that's just my... Wasn't there, um, wasn't there the blind man that um, they were like, what sin did he commit? And Jesus said, you know, says that wasn't the case. Yeah, it that's... Wasn't the sin. That's John chapter nine, if you're looking for the reference. Uh, and it's a lengthy passage. And the disciples and the religious leaders are saying, yeah, who sinned, this man or his parents? Yeah, or his parents. And he was born blind. And Jesus said, neither. Yeah. You know, this, uh, this man's blindness is for the glory of God in, in the sense that God was going to heal this blind man through the ministry of Jesus. Uh, so Jesus is basically dismantling their yeah. assumptions on that. That thinking, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's humans, you always try to find somebody to blame. Yeah, as humans, we, as you say it, as humans, we always try to find someone to blame. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Yeah. So. All right, let's keep going ahead here. So that might raise another question. What about medicine? Uh, is prayer all that is needed for healing? So there are certain sects of Christianity that uh, are very resistant to medical intervention, believing that they have enough faith that God is going to heal them. Uh, so I know Jehovah's Witnesses won't take blood transfusions and because life is in the blood, et cetera, et cetera. Here's a a quote uh, from uh, the, the apocryphal book of uh, Sirach, and it reflects actually the Jewish attitude between the Testaments, uh, between the Old and New Testament. And uh, so many of the rabbis, this would be their perspective. Honor physicians for their services, for the Lord created them, for their gift of healing comes from the Most High. The Lord created medicines out of the earth, and the sensible do not despise them. So that's a that's an interesting perspective. And of course, Luke himself was a doctor. 
uh, one of the, the writers of the gospel himself was a doctor. So <clears throat> this gets this gets really complicated in the sense of using medicine, but at the same time, not getting addicted to certain medications, opiates and things like that, uh, using prayer, and yet at the same time, not thinking that prayer is all you need because sometimes you need an antibiotic too, you know, that type of thing, so. Didn't even in that example though, Jesus used his spit and um, spit into his hands, right? Yeah. And uh, to heal the blind man. I right. mean, that wasn't just by just prayer. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. What I that's an interesting that's an interesting uh, observation. Why did he do that? And was there some type of medicinal purpose of uh, creating mud that he put on his eyes? They did think that way, though, in ancient, yeah. like, Greece and Rome. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very good. So what I think that the emphasis is here, notice in verse 14, you should call on the elders of the church. This is probably one of the earliest words that we that is translated church in the new testament is called ecclesia and james uses it for the first time in the letter here uh and i think what he's trying to do is rally the 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 community around the sick person because it's one of the purposes of the church to bring comfort and healing in the midst of certain circumstances so one thing that crossed my mind was, is the healing for more than just the individual? Is there some types of healing to the church, uh, to the community of people, when they find that they're involved in other people's life and it makes a difference and they come out the other side and they've been healed of an illness or uh, somehow their involvement brought an intercession that really made a difference. So, you know, I, my thoughts are here. Yeah, the individual's important, but is that all that's in focus here? Could it be the health of the entire community as well, not just the individual? So, thoughts there? So then he says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that there's healing. Uh, again, we go back to that reference in Mark 9 that I just mentioned. Um, there is this idea that, that there's this kind of communal element to this paragraph. And we see it here when he says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other, verse 16 so that you may be healed because the prayer of a righteous man and woman is powerful and effective. And then he uses Elijah as the example. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the Elijah story doesn't seem to fit the direct connection to the physical element here because Elijah as a prophet prayed uh, that it would not rain, and it didn't do, do so for three and a half years. He prays again, and then it begins to rain. And it seems as that is almost like a divine uh, element to his prophetic ministry as he continues to try to call people back from idolatry to follow the one true God. So I just find it interesting that James uses Elijah as the illustration or what he has just said in the previous verses, but have some thoughts there. Okay. What does your version say um, about Elijah was a man with a nature like ours? Mine says, <laughs> like that he uh, was. Yeah, he was. He was. Do you think that that means he was a? He was a man with a gift of prophecy. He wasn't actually a prophet. Or was he a prophet? 
he would be considered a prophet, yes. Uh, but I think here the NIV is saying Elijah was a man just like us. In other words, he wasn't divine. He was an individual just like their individuals, and they can make a difference through their prayer. Um, yeah. And I think that I think that's the main point that he's trying to make here. Not that he, not his prayer isn't answered because he's a prophet. His prayer was answered because he was fervent. You see here, he said he prayed earnestly. So that brings up a whole question. How, how does earnestness and praying fervently, how does that play into the answer or lack of an answer in, in prayer? That, that's another, this paragraph has a lot of interesting questions it raises. It really does. Yeah. So, okay, let's look at this, and we'll uh, we'll finish up. So, in verses nineteen and twenty, uh, it says, "My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring him back, remember this: whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from a death." from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Well, good luck figuring out what this means. Uh, uh, my brothers, if one of you should wander, that's the word that jumps out at me here. He gets off track. Uh, he's foolish to use kind of a Proverbs uh, word. Uh, if he wanders from what's right or true, and someone intervenes and brings him back, well, he's saving him from death and covers over a multitude of sins. Is the death physical here? Or is it a death-like experience because he's followed the wrong path and he's living out the consequences of his choices? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. You have some thoughts there? I think it says to save his soul. So it's a, in a spiritual way, he won't die because you've just saved his soul, right? Or yeah. yeah. And I think the idea maybe of his soul being in jeopardy is living out the consequences of some stupid decisions that might have lifelong consequences. You know, I don't know. And, and if you are, if you are saved, then you, you do have your sins covered. I don't, I don't think James is trying to introduce to us here that you can lose your salvation. I don't think that's at the point of this. I, hmm. I think it's more of a cause and effect relationship that when we, how do I, when we make choices, our choices turn around and make us. And I think, you know, Sometimes we live out the consequences of those choices. Uh, we might be forgiven for them, but sometimes we can't uh, reverse the, the, the effect or the consequence of it. Uh, I'm not real sure what James is trying to get at here. It's almost as if these last two verses are kind of like an add-on uh, in the sense that, okay, bef before I close this book, I'm going to throw these couple of things at you. And then it's it's done. It just, the book is just kind of, doot, it's done. It so, seems like there's some pages missing. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as he said, these last couple of verses could could very easily be used by people to police each other. That might that might be a consequence you don't want. I don't know. Yeah, and my judgment is better than, than your judgment, so I'm going to straighten you out. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes uh, we think our judgment is better than other people, so we feel entitled to straighten other people out. So, uh, <laughs> well, yeah. Do you see here we... When we read the scripture, sometimes 
we walk away with more questions than we do answers, which is interesting. Uh, and I think as you do that, you just continue to go, well, I'm going to continue to walk the walk and seek wisdom and, uh, and use wisdom. And maybe these things have additives to my wisdom and, uh, and, you know, I need to keep these things in mind, but, uh, sometimes there's not a one-to-one -one application because James has something in mind here. I guess that's the last word I want to say about this study. We're only listening to one side of a conversation when we read the scripture. He has in mind other people and circumstances as he writes this that we have no way of knowing what it is. So as we listen in, we're listening in on one side of a conversation. I think we've all had the experience where we hear people talking on the phone and by what we can hear on this side of the conversation, we try to piece together the storyline. But it is it's only after the person gets off the phone and completes the, the picture that we go, boy, I kind of misread that. Um, this, this is true in the Bible sometimes too. We're only given sometimes half of the conversation. So, all right, we're going to close it up there. So Mark says this verse is saying, you know, this verse is trying to encourage us to help one another. And I think that's a good way to close the study because that's the consistent thing we find in the scriptures, right? To look right. out for one another, to pray for one another, and to help one another. And I think that's an up note that we could use to, to finish this study. So, all right, we're going to close off there. I hope you guys have a great Thanksgiving. And uh, we'll be back uh, on Wednesday night, two weeks from tonight, okay? Okay. All right. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank, Thank you. you. You Thank too. Thank you. Okay, have a, have a great one. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.